It's Monday, September 17th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager. Happy Monday, guys. Happy Monday. Good weekends? Did you guys have good weekends? Yeah. I don't really care. This is just my excuse to say that I saw Bruce Springsteen over the weekend. It was my first time, and Uh, oh my heavens, does that guy just crush it. Have you seen Bruce before? No. He's a performer. I haven't. I've, I've he's made, amazing. I can only imagine. He's I've... amazing. And what just kills me is he's a good 15 to 20 years older than me, mm-hmm. and, and I have one-tenth the energy. What was the encore? Uh, there were a bunch of songs in the encore. There were maybe like six or seven songs. He played for three hours and 45 minutes. Whoa. There you go. He's taking those jam bands go. to task. All right. Let's move on from the boss. Uh, we're going to talk some Office Depot, Tesla Motors. We're going to dip into the full mailbag. But we are going to start with Apple because shares of Apple just shy of $700 this morning on the news that pre-orders for the iPhone 5 topped 2 million in just 24 hours. Joe Mager, were you among the 2 million pre-ordering an iPhone 5? I was not. I suspect I'll get one at some point. But, you know, like we talked about, it's going to sell incredibly well, even if skeptics were a little bit harsh on it. And I know, like I said, you know, there's a lot with the phone that Samsung has done before. So LTE, a bigger screen. There aren't a lot of epic innovations here like we've seen in earlier Apple phones, but there's a lot of demand for the brand of iPhone 5. People have been excited about it conceptually, and I think you're definitely seeing that. And, you know, it's a great phone, and it should sell well, and it's clearly off to a great start. Jason, one of the things we talked about uh, on Motley Fool Money recently was, and this seems to point in that direction, that Apple is certainly known for its design and and the look and feel of the products. But when it comes to the operations and the logistics and the shipping and all of that sort of behind-the-scenes stuff that Tim Cook was responsible for when he was chief operating officer, this company uh, seems to have almost no peer whatsoever. It seems like they're doing a pretty good job of just getting this stuff out there and into people's hands as quickly as possible. But, you know, I, I thought it was interesting to note the, the, I mean, just the demand for smartphones in general. I was reading where this research firm IHS this is a story I read in All Things D. Uh, it's expected to, it, people around the world are expected to buy about 655 million smartphones this year. And this, this article was more along the lines of the demise of the PC, but I think it was really, you know, talking about the popularity, the growing popularity of smartphones. And so Apple's doing a great job of capitalizing on their uh, replacement cycle with this. You know, we kind of make jokes with the, you know, when's the iPhone 20 coming out or whatever. But, I mean, there's, there's something to it. They, they add little bells and whistles, a larger screen, it's lighter, it's thinner. I mean, again, it didn't have the wow factor for me, but apparently 2 million people have struck in 24 hours, so... Joe, in terms of the stock, um, you know whether it it stays at this seven hundred level, blows through it, or or pulls back a little bit. Um, I'm I'm curious about Apple's cash because it, we talked for a very long time about well, are they ever going to pay a dividend? And now they are. It it almost seems like we're getting to the point pretty soon, and maybe it's not even till you know calendar year 2013 that. That people are going to start to ask, well, when are they going to up the dividend? What, you know, because I'm trying to think about the thesis for buying this stock, and even if you think it's undervalued, more uh, phones. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the thesis. Is that it in a nutshell? Yeah, that's the thesis. Were you, were you going to cut to what are they going to do with the cash? Yeah, I cut you off. Yeah, I, that's fine. I don't think they're going to be in a rush to do anything with it. Apple's a business that a decade ago, and it's easy to forget now, but they the stock at some point was selling for roughly the cash they had in the bank. People had completely forsaken the businesses. You know, when operating one had it had no future. Michael Dell made that smarky, snarky joke about how they should just rec- return cash to shareholders. What's funny is we laugh about that now, but at the time, if 
is actually a very reasonable question whether they should do that. And, you know, at this point, I think they've learned from their experiences in the past. They're going to keep a big war chest and they'll pay out more in dividends, but only at the point where they get way too much heat for it. They're not looking to make any. Here's the thing. I don't think they'll make any big acquisitions soon because they don't need to. At some point, though, they'll have too much cash and they're going to start feeling some competitive pressure and they might feel more inclined to go out and buy something to bolster the brand, not necessarily to grow, but to improve the experience and individuality of the iPhone itself. Shares of Office Depot up 8% this morning after the activist investment fund Starboard Value LP bought a 13% stake. Starboard CEO Jeffrey Smith said he thinks that shares of Office Depot are, quote, deeply undervalued, Jason. Obviously, he has a self-interest in saying that, but what, no do, you, question. what do you think? Is it is it undervalued, or is this one of those situations where it's undervalued for really good reasons? Yeah, I mean, I tend to fall on the side of the value trap argument here, and it's not just Office Depot. I mean, Staples is another one that I'm not too terribly enthusiastic about. Staples is considerably bigger than Office Depot. If you look at the store footprints today, Office Depot has around 1,260 uh, stores open and Staples is uh, almost 20, 2,300. Now, it's it's worth noting that, I mean, one of the stipulations of this of this position was that Office Depot really needs to, to reduce its size. And I think you're looking at the same kind of thing that maybe Best Buy is going through right now. And the biggest problem out there is just the online competition between places like Amazon, uh, Walmart to a degree. And if you look at Office Depot's stock and sales over these past five years, and the stock is down about 85% over the last five years, and if you look at same-store sales, same-store sales are dwindling. Uh, sales per square foot are down almost 20% over the past five years, which is another indicator. Uh, and also, gross margins keep on taking a hit, which means they keep on cutting prices just to get stuff out the doors. So these aren't businesses that I'm very uh, optimistic about. I mean, I tend to see the online space as the way to really go here. Um, Joe, when Yeah, it- but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, huh. And it's not to say that Office... OfficeDepot.com? It's not to say that Office Depot can't... Uh, get in there and make some make some hay with that online space, but really they are they're really behind on the on the curve there. With, with Amazon has has already done so well, so it's going to be really yeah. a tough uphill climb. I will say I've seen Jeff Smith speak before. I saw him at the Activist Investing Conference last year, which was a very small niche group of folks <laughs> in attendance. I was extremely impressed with him, and I do think he has a lot of success at going into fading franchises like Office Depot and helping them better control costs and wring out value and really kind of extending that cigar butt and getting a lot more life from it. That said, he's definitely biting off a lot here uh, for all the all the reasons that Jason said. And it's not like these guys have been standing still. I, I looked at their P&Ls and they've cut SG&A, basically their overhead cost by 18% since the peak. So it's not like they haven't already been cutting staff, cutting their footprint. So I think he's going to find it tough to get in there and make a lot of change. Well, Let's uh, do a quick uh, survey here. Let's do a scientific. When was the last time you went to an Office Depot? I don't even remember. Uh-huh. You know, see, I, I don't either. And that's just it. I mean, even with school starting back up, and we were talking about this before taping, yeah. um, our school system has this thing from educational products where you can order all the supplies that are that my daughters needed for their school supplies. So they, they just send it right to their classroom in a nice little package. So well, I never even had to step out of the door to get the stuff. And so I, I think that you're going to see this this type of thing being offered more and more and more. And maybe Office Depot needs to step in there and offer something like that if they don't yet. But there's no question there that big box in general is facing a lot of headwinds and Office 
Depot and Staples to a degree are just, you know, some of the casualties, I think, here. And Joe, I just want to broaden it a little bit to activist investors, because on the one hand, I could see if you're a shareholder of Office Depot and you see this news, you're probably happy, not just because your shares are up, but, but you know, here's someone um, presumably with a track record of success. On the, yeah. fl- on the flip side, they, you know, just like not every investor is great, not every activist investor can be, you know, great at their job. What, what, what's like one or two things to look for, for, you know, for shareholders when they hear that an activist investor has just taken a stake, whether it's a, someone running a fund or an individual, whatever it is, what are one or two questions to ask about that person? Well, it's almost always a short-term positive because if nothing else, having an activist comes in highlights that a stock is cheap or at least really out of favor. Uh, you want to look at, especially if the activist is coming in and suggesting some very large sweeping changes and they want to be more operational and hands, hands-on, you want to see if they have success with that uh, historically, whether they've gone into tight situations and helped turn it around because it's one thing to come in and, you know, suggest that you change the capital structure, which is more a financial engineering move, where you might say, we can take on more debt, let's buy back shares. That's one thing, and that's you know something financial nerds like us get. But we don't have a lot of experience running companies, and it's another to go in and say, we think we can cut our footprint here, X, Y, Z, and that's a lot more difficult. But the guys who can do that, or in the case of like a Bill Ackman, find talented people <laughs> to come in and do it for them, that's something interesting. But, you know, even Ackman, a wonderful activist, great investor, has clearly, you know, made several mistakes. He messed up with Target and J.C. Penney. It's been a total mess, even though he brought in Ron Johnson, who everyone agreed was a great hire at the time. And that's not working out so well. Still like saying Ron Johnson. <laughs> Shares of electric automaker Tesla Motors up more than 5% this morning after the stock got an upgrade from Morgan Stanley. Uh, Joe, speaking of short-term positives. Obviously, that's a good thing for Tesla Motors. Um, presumably, you know, you've got the, this large investment firm uh, upgrading the stock. But uh, on the flip side, that doesn't do anything to really change the underlying business whatsoever. No, but <clears throat> Tesla isn't really my cup of tea. <laughs> you know, it's a total rule breaker business. I can't count on you to defend Morgan Stanley's upgrade? No. It, in fairness, though, I do think the guys at Morgan Stanley, the auto analysts are very sharp. So I do take their opinion seriously. But in Tesla's case, you know, it's definitely a, a very high-risk, high-reward outcome where they're either going to hit it big or they're going bust. Uh, they do have very smart leadership. And I saw recently that they've boosted their production now to 100 vehicles a week, which for, you know, a GM or a Toyota is peanuts. <laughs> but for a growing business, that's a nice step. And especially given that they're trying to make so many components from scratch, that's impressive. And, you know, like I said, it's going to be... A total hit or miss. I think odds are it's going to be a miss, but if it does hit, then it'll be a home run of a stock. Uh, Jason, clearly uh, one investor at Tesla Motors is doing his part to try and and level the playing field, or not even level the playing field, basically get the big three automakers in Detroit out of the competition, because Tim Draper, who's a, a venture capital guy who's a shareholder of Tesla, last week said that the big three automakers should just admit defeat on electric cars. They should just, you know, start focusing on flying cars, and they should just get out of the way and let Tesla do I'd, their thing. I'd love to pit Draper up against Alan Mulally and see what Mulally had to say to him about the Ford Focus Electric, because I know Ford is certainly very, very amped on their uh, electric, on the Focus Electric vehicle, and I think that's I think that's probably a little bit more uh, grandstanding for Tesla's cause than anything else, because, you know, I mean, I, I've been a big 
uh, supporter of virtually every kind of alternative energy that can that can help us progress in the transportation. I don't think it's just going to be electric. It's not going to just be gas. It's not going to just be natural gas, but it's going to be a combination of a lot of things. And so you're seeing that through companies, particularly Ford. I, I know they're focused big time on the Focus Electric and with the, the different types of, uh, of uh, other, other vehicles they're putting out there, alternative energy vehicles. And so and to, to say that Tesla is going to be the only one to really make the electric vehicle work, I think is a little bit naive. You can always drop us an email. Radio at fool.com is the way to get a hold of us. Email from Chris in Hamburg, Germany. He writes, sticking with the car theme, he writes, Any thoughts on Ford Motor? I did quite well with them a while back because I had put $1,000 behind my conviction they wouldn't go into bankruptcy. A few weeks back, I was thinking about going back in when I saw them around 8 and now they're around $10 a share but I don't have a feeling for how much potential there is right now. Jason, uh, when I checked right before we walked in the studio, shares of Ford trading at about 1040. What do you think in terms of the potential? Because when you look at a chart of this stock, it's trading over the past year plus in a pretty narrow range of like 9 to 13. So even if you believe that this is a strong company with a great future ahead of it, Certainly, the most recent stock performance hasn't shown enormous growth potential. Yeah, it's been trading in a pretty tight range lately. And I'll, I'll say this about Ford. I, I do like the company. I like where they're going. I think that if you're going to consider Ford as an investment, you really have to look at this as a five- to ten-year story. Uh, the short-term headwinds, I think, for a company like Ford or GM to a degree, I think those headwinds are there, uh, and they're going to have to really try to figure out a way to work through them. But I do believe that these companies will succeed in the long run, and I think that today's stock prices actually are pretty fair. They're pretty decent value if you have that longer-term perspective in mind. And so, you know, two things that stand out with me uh, in regard to Ford right now are tremendous problems in Europe. And, you know, we had talked before about these uh, structural issues and where they're really having to focus on closing down plants and and letting some of those those workforce go, which is proving to be uh, easier said than done because workforces in Europe are so heavily unionized. Uh, The other thing to keep in mind with Ford is that we do know that Alan Mulally is going to be stepping down soon. Mm -hmm. Uh, They it looks like Mark Fields is going to be taking over that job. There's nothing announced yet, but we know he's stepping up to the COO position here soon. And so it would make sense to kind of see that natural progression from COO to CEO. Uh, Mark Fields has been with the company ever since 1989. So he's still a little bit of that old guard mentality. And I think they kept him around to see if if he had sort of come to Mullally's uh, sort of mode of thinking. And maybe that's maybe that's what they're seeing. Uh, but, you know, that, that's another thing to keep in mind is there will be a, a handover of the power, so to speak, here soon. Joe, in terms of General Motors, uh, to what Jason was saying about the time frame, do you agree with that? Is, <laughs> well, it, it just keeps getting longer. <laughs> is, is, is that the same basic thesis, whether it's Ford or GM, you, you really can't be looking for a quick turnaround? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think GM's further out, and the reason is that Ford has more fresh cars on the market now than it has for the last two years. In GM's case, they're rolling out a lot of new plates uh, later this year and next, and that's great. And they'll do incrementally well for it. I think it will help refresh the brands a little bit. But, you know, it's still struggling for all the reasons Jason laid out. But big picture, I think both these stocks are in a very good position. They're both selling around eight times this year's earnings, which is a pretty low bar compared to the market. And I still think there's a lot of pent-up demand for vehicles here in the U.S. You know, my ballpark is that we should be doing 16, 17 million on a normalized basis of cars sold in the U.S., Right now, we're trending for around 14 and a half this year. Uh, by my guesstimates, 
or my estimates anyway, I think there's roughly a year's worth of pent-up demand from vehicles that are just latent and people that put off buying new cars because they couldn't afford it and it was just an easy thing to push off. But I do think as the economy comes back, you see more exciting vehicles come into market that the consumer is going to come back. And the U.S. market, which is so key to both GM and Ford, will do very well in these stocks selling at eight times earnings. It was very low expectations, and it wouldn't take much for a big change. Yeah, so that's all to say, Chris and Hamburg, that yes, I believe that Ford is probably a pretty good investment today, but just be prepared to put that cash away for a while and just sort of let it sit there five five years or so. It, it could be even a little bit longer, but it's a good long-term play, I think. Speaking of pent-up demand, we haven't talked about the Google driverless cars in a while. And, and Joe, I know that based yeah. on your weekend, you're, you're even more in favor of the driverless car concept. I am. I'm teaching my <laughs> wife and mother-in-law how to drive right now, Ooh. which has been an adventure. Uh, my wife's doing great. She does a lot of martial arts, so she's you know, very uh, quick. Quick I reflexes. Guess. Very quick reflexes. You know, in, 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 gets out of line, in DC she traffic, she could beat the crap out of me too. <laughs> but in DC traffic, you need you need yes, it. You do. Yeah, like where I grew up driving, you know, it's big sloping hills, very open, great visibility, and DC is pretty much you know welcome to the jungle. Uh, just totally violent <laughs> driving. But anyway, I, it, kidding aside, and I'm not like saying that they're not going to learn how to drive, and they'll do it just fine. Uh, but it was definitely a reminder of like, wow, it would be great if there was a way that we could safely automate driving. Uh, you don't really have an appreciation for how dangerous driving is until you get in the car with someone who hasn't driven before. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is pretty high risk. The operative word there is safely. And I think that's probably the biggest hurdle for anyone to overcome, right? Jason Moser, Joe Maker, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Our producer is Matt Greer. We'll see you tomorrow.